Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saadeh. You're listening to WFNU LP St. Paul Frogtown Community Radio 94.1 FM. Thanks to Manny Mastis for that opening music and just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at C Miriam. That's C M I R I A M. And you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, amongst many other podcast sites. You can also reach our show at Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. On today's episode, we'll have a pre recorded interview with Merjan Sirdar, a South Minneapolis organizer and educator. And just a reminder, if you've got feedback on a story or a story tip, please email us. Again, that's the Radical News Radio Hour at gmail.com. I spoke with Merjan last week in a Facebook Live interview broadcast by The Uptake, a community news organization. Merjan, as with Councilmember Jeremiah Elson's interview last week, is part of a series of stories I'm working on as I explore the various movements related to police and specifically the Minneapolis Police Department through interviews with organizers, electeds, and others who have focused their work on the police in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. Here's that interview now. With me today is Merjan, who is a columnist for The Uptake, a new writer for us, and we're so glad to have him, and a longtime South Minneapolis uh, community organizer who's going to be talking about the organizing happening around police abolition and just abolition in general in the 38th Street community. Merjan, um, welcome. Thank you again. Um, so yeah, no, thanks for having me and, and I'm excited for this conversation. And I actually have a new um, piece that I'm working on um, about abolition as well, so. So how did you become involved in this conversation? Well, I, I would say it's rooted in my experience growing up here in the Twin Cities uh, as, a, as a black youth growing up in the suburbs, um, dealing with violent white supremacy and um, policing. Um, and you know, the, the, the politics around abolition um, in the black community are more common than the actual labels and terms of abolition. So, um, you know, black folks have known forever that the police function in society is, um, you know, not to uphold public safety, but to uphold order, especially in poor communities. And, um, I remember I think I was about 12 years old when I watched Rodney King get nearly beat to death by the LAPD. And that was, you know, around the same time when my experiences with the police began to change. As a child, I remember police in our suburban communities. I, so I grew up in low income housing with a single mother, um, you know, around other poor folks. Um, it was a pretty multiracial community surrounded by very white affluent um, families. And I remember the police engaging with us as children, handing out football cards, playing football with us. And, you know, it really fell into that narrative of them being the good guys and the heroes. And, you know, I, I, I can remember that as early as maybe six, seven years old. And, you know, by the time I got to nine, 10 years old, um, you know, not only did the police start to treat us differently, but also the parents of our white friends began to treat us differently as well. And then as a teenager, uh, growing up in Bloomington, I've had some pretty awful experiences uh, with the police. I was assaulted when I was 17 years old. I was uh, a senior in high school at Kennedy High, and I was, you know, on my way back to class uh, after having lunch, we had open campus lunch and I was crossing the street and I, I was detained by an undercover police officer for jaywalking and I was uncooperative. Um, I was, you know, I was upset. I was 17. I was late for class and he called for backup and 
you know, took about four of them um, to really um, manhandle me and pummel me and um, brutalize me, you know, just to uh, detain me for jaywalking. And they took me to the city jail and I missed class and um, they never charged me with anything. Um, but, you know, that was my first very violent um, encounter with the police, but it, it definitely wasn't my last. So, so, so really my activism, it's, it's rooted in my experience. Um, but in this community, you know, we've been doing a lot of work around um, combating gentrification and policing in different ways. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But this conversation, you know, it's also much bigger than policing as well. Um, uh, so, so I've come into, into this conversation in many different ways. Um, as a teacher, I taught for two years in Minneapolis Public Schools with the Office of Black Male Student Achievement. Uh, Michael Walker is the director. They're doing great work still with the young kings and queens. Um, and, uh, you know, so as a teacher, you know, abolition was always front and center in the classroom, whether we're talking about on the plantation or off the plantation. Um, so it's always to me about centering modern day abolition in a historical context. And you're a, you were a social studies teacher with MPS, is that right? And you taught at North High at one point? Yeah, I was, I, so I worked particularly with the Office of Black Male Student Achievement. So our role was a little different than just a traditional um, MPS teacher, but, uh, but my licensure is under social studies and I was specifically a black history teacher. So I worked with all black boys. Yep, it, so I taught a semester at North, uh, a semester at Field Middle School. I taught two years at Franklin Middle School. That was uh, where I did the, the majority of my work. Um, and I taught a year at Fair High School downtown. And we also did pullout groups um, with younger kids. And so the majority of my, my students were North Side, uh, black boys from the North Side, but I, I also did work with a group of South Side boys. Uh, some young, um, some of my students are actually neighbors. Uh, I had a, one of my students' moms in my block meeting yesterday. Um, so these conversations are, you know, whether they're in the classroom on the North Side or in the classroom on the South Side, they're rooted in the community. And our goal has been really trying to, uh, uh, the, the goal of, I should say, the Office of Black Male Student Achievement um, one of the goals is to bring those voices from Black youth and the, and the conversations that are happening in Black households, you know, to the forefront and create space for that. Um, and these are a lot of, you know, conversations that are happening in Black communities. Again, a lot of folks don't necessarily use the term abolition, um, but the politic around a world free of, you know, being murdered by the state, you know, Black folks get that. And especially when we start to connect, you know, policing enforcement to racial poverty. And, you know, in this community, this is all tied to the battle for land. Um, and I'll, you know, again, I want to um, make more of those connections as, as we talk further. So what does abolition mean to you? I know you've said that it's bigger than just police abolition. So what does that mean to you? And how is that connected to your work in South Minneapolis at 38th Street? So the work we've been doing, the, the work I've been doing, particularly in this community, I've, I've lived here in the Bryant neighborhood for 13 years. And so Bryant, most people would probably, probably just refer to it as central. Um, you know, if you drive through the Bryant neighborhood and you blink, you might miss it. It's a tiny neighborhood, four blocks by four blocks. But we're south of 38th Street and Central is north of 38th Street. So I lived, I moved here in 2007 and I moved here very intentionally, you know, looking for a black community, trying to escape uh, white supremacy in the suburbs. And so I settled here right before the recession hit 
and I saw how the 2008 recession really rocked this community, specifically with the, dis the further displacement of Black families, Black families that pioneered this community. Um, and when I started to really see the gentrification, you know, on my block, that's when I started really getting involved. And, you know, so my organizing, unfortunately, was reactionary. But it didn't take long for us to realize we had to build infrastructure and we have to be on the offense. We can't be on the defense. We have to um, learn how to frame it and control the narratives. Um, so part of that was learning about this community and, and the rich history. You know, we've learned that uh, the, the Tilson built project that began, I, I believe it was 1954, was the first federally funded integrated house, open housing um, opportunities. And this community quickly became a black community. So 38th and 4th, 4th Avenue was the residential corridor. I'm sorry, East, East 38th and 4th was the business corridor, but 4th Avenue going up and down um, Bryant Central was the residential corridor. And so Chicago was the racial boundary on the other on the east side of Chicago was, you know, racial covenants that made it a very white community historically and much more of a black community historically on the west side of Chicago. So Chicago and 38th has always been battled over. Um, that has been a disputed border, just like many borders throughout the world, right? Um, it just doesn't get as much attention because it's a very local issue, but now it's a global issue. Um, but uh, so our, our work really was rooted in combating gentrification. So 2013 is when I, I really started to get active in organizing in the neighborhood. I had a background in doing some political organizing. Uh, in 2008, I worked for the reelection campaign of Congressman Keith Ellison, and we helped you know get Obama and all the Democrats elected. And I realized um, after doing that work that there's not a whole lot of power in political organizing. And um, so in 2013, I really started neighborhood organizing and doing community organizing. And I realized there's so much more power in the community. And um, so our work was rooted in combating gentrification and again, policing in another way. Right. Uh, so as white folks moved into this community, um, you know, the community quickly changed and still is changing. And just like any community, when gentrification happens, whether that's wealthier people moving into working class communities, white folks moving into communities of color, you know, or, you know, the, the, the development that, that really, um, you know, lures tourists or whatever into a community that displaces the historic um, pioneers of, of, of those communities, um, you know, that you begin to see like policing is, is a much broader system of, of how we interact with one another and the actual police force is just the most violent expression of that and the, the most violent mechanism of, of that. But so there's, there, there's a documentary called The Jim Crow of the North by producer uh, Jim, uh, Daniel Bergen. And it's, you know, people can watch it on YouTube and it's about the city. And specifically there's a segment focusing on this community and you know, how black folks were segregated and their only real option was to to move here and to buy homes here in South Central, at least on the South side. So then, you know, a generation later, those same families are being displaced. And, you know, the, the few places they did have refuge where they could build community and own property, that's being taken away, right? So, what we saw, yeah, and you know, so many communities see this not just communities that are experiencing aggressive gentrification, but 
for sure communities that are experiencing aggressive gentrification throughout the country and the world, right? You see uh, property crimes, vandalism, and, you know, car and garage burglaries, and a typical response in neighborhoods, especially here in, in Minneapolis, is, you know, crime and safety meetings with the police and the council member in the neighborhood association. So some of the work we did was taking back those narratives and those spaces and saying, hey, um, instead of organizing, you know, white homeowners to say, hey, how do we get more police in the community or how do we create our own policing system of neighborhood watch to protect property? Why don't we talk about the root of what's driving these crimes and these conditions? And so we, we were able to do that um, going back to 2016 after, you know, three years of, of um, defensive organizing or reactionary organizing, we were finally able to kind of um, begin to control the narrative. And they were really productive conversations, you know. Um, it, they were mostly white homeowners who participated, which is not uncommon um, in a racial capitalist society when people are overworked, you know, rent is higher than ever, wages are lower than ever, and people have less time to volunteer and participate. But obviously there's, there's never a, volu a, a volunteer shortage of, of white folks. Um, and we see that even in black and brown communities. And so I say all that to say that, you know, we work with everybody who shows up even though of course our goal is to center black and brown voices, specifically black voices who pioneered this community. And so, so folks show up for different reasons and different capacities to our, our community conversations, but um, it wasn't as difficult as we thought to make some of these connections and get you know, the, the so-called gentrifiers of the community to start to understand, you know, all of our role in upholding white supremacy, especially white folks who move into a community without understanding the community, the existing community and the history. So we began to, you know, have conversations about engaging youth and families and building community. And instead of building neighborhood watch or police systems, how do we build community safety? in a different capacity through you know economic opportunities through um, putting resources where the needs are and through community mediation and conflict resolution um, you know those are those are the best tools that we youth workers and teachers have to deal with conflict and you know a lot of the most violent conflict that happens in our city is among young people um, so, you know, having youth workers lead communities rather than, you know, police officers, militarized, um, uh, you know, protectors of, of the state. Um, so, so that's how we, 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 we frame this. And, you know, again, this is um, really, it's tied to this battle for land. And, you know, we want to drive this home that, you know, what's playing out on 38th in Chicago in 2020 is a 400 year old struggle for land since Europeans, you know, claimed this land for themselves and settled. And there has never been any real land rights for anybody else, especially black folks, right? Even indigenous folks and their indigenous land have such very little claim to the land in the United States. And even most white people up until, you know, the New Deal didn't have any real claim to owning property. Historically, the United States, you know, was a, a, a system that was rooted in the value of private property over human life. And so when we see, you know, this brother George Floyd get murdered over, you know, a counterfeit $20 bill, you know, obviously it was 
much more complex than that, but that's what kicked it off. That's what kicked off the whole interaction, right? It was a business who, you know, is also being made an easy scape built the business. Of course, Cup Foods has been problematic in this community and everybody, everybody knows that, but they've also been rooted in this community as well. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the system that says we call the police to deal with every little conflict um, rather than the actual person who calls the police. So we, we, we try to keep framing this in a broader lens, right? Like the Beckys and the Karens who are popping up on YouTube videos, viral videos everywhere who are calling the police, making up stories to um, protect themselves from black men. They are problematic. They are definitely problematic, and they're in this community. And the Connors and the Kevins too, right? Women always get blamed for it, but really, it's 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 men who are at the top of this pyramid. And so, Derek Chauvin, you know, when he shows up the way he did on Memorial Day at Cup Foods, he's protecting the Kevins and the Connors and the Beckys and the Karens in this community. He's not doing anything wrong. Uh, in his mind and he's not wrong you know Betsy Hodges who I'm not a fan of by any means wrote an op-ed for the New York Times and you know I don't want to argue how genuine her words are because clearly she was part of the problem and she had the opportunity to make some serious changes and it's easy for her to Monday morning quarterback and the words she wrote are very true and they need to be said that the police are also easy scapegoat when they're really just doing the job that the politicians and the corporations and the white liberal gentrifiers ask them to do, right? So when racial covenants fail to keep black people out of, you know, the east side of Chicago Avenue, right? Then you have, you see lynch mobs like the Arthur Lee uh, family in the early, I think it was 1931, right? They moved to 46 in Columbus, which was you know, racially segregated white community. And, you know, the the racial covenants did not stop this black family from moving in. So 4,000 violent white folks showed up on their lawn to force them out. It took them a couple of years, but they forced the family out. Um, and again, you know, so in 2020, we're not gonna see a, a violent mob of 4,000 white men try to force a black family out. They just call the police, right? Um, and they say they were playing their music too loud or they were smoking weed or something, right? So we we want to connect this to this bigger picture because, you know, if if we just have a narrow focus on police abolitionism, I think we're going to lose because America does not love Black people more than they love the police, right? Like, they have the police for a reason. And America, especially white Americans, especially don't love black people more than they love their private property, right? So that's the work that needs to be done. How do we help people reconnect to their humanity, all of us? Because racism has done a number on all of us where we value private property over human life. Um, so connecting people back to their humanity is rooted in abolishing racial capitalism, right? This whole arrangement where we need the police, if we don't begin to address that, we're just gonna recreate a new system and call it something different, right? The, the, the origins of the US experiment are rooted in enterprise and profit, right? It's rooted in extracting wealth from black and brown and indigenous bodies first and foremost as well as the land and redistributing that wealth to white people and white communities that has been the arrangement this whole time for 400 years and so when you know the the conservatives you know the fascists want to always talk about communism or socialism and the redistribution of wealth and resources to scare people what they failed to mention is that the redistribution of wealth has always been happening. Socialism for the elite, for the few white males who can own, own property historically in this country, including human property, 
right, have always had a system, it's been a Ponzi scheme of extracting wealth from us to prop up the system of white supremacy and racial capitalism. And now, you know, the, the wealthiest country in the history of the world. That's a long answer, isn't it? No, I appreciate that answer. And I appreciate the thoughtfulness and intention there. There's a, a protest saying the whole damn system is guilty as hell. And I think, and is, and is, and is broken as hell. And I think that's a false statement. The system is not broken. The system is actually, these systems of oppression, these systems of white supremacy are actually operating in um, the exact same way that they're supposed to be operating. They are not broken by any means. This is what they're supposed to be doing. And I wonder as you look, and, and as a follow-up to that, as people talk about police abolition, what I'm seeing a lot of is this recreation of these same um, systems of oppression. So for example, wanting to put money into um, healthcare systems to respond to issues that normally people call the police for and not realizing how often healthcare is used to actually prop up those same systems of oppression that police are called for. So as you look at the organizing that's happening now, what are your perspectives on what that work looks like and whether or not it's actually going to make viable um, change in the community or at least reform in the community? And I say reform with a quote unquote, because reform is not what we need. But if, if people are looking for reform, do you think the way that they're going about it is valid? No, I don't. I, and I think we have to be able to read through the interference um, there's too many open questions. So I think, you know, defund the police, when I hear that, that's a different movement than abolition. Um, folks for years have been calling to defund and divest from policing and move those funds into community resources um, uh, so we could center community care, right? And unfortunately, you know, the way things are structured is, you know, we, we can't necessarily do both, right? We can't tie up $200 million a year for policing and provide all the resources our communities need. Um, so, so we gotta understand the different conversations that are happening. Um, and, you know, when we talk about reform, you know, again, right now, we're beginning to see such a divide within black communities and you have the black, you have, gatekeepers of white supremacy, of racial capitalism, who are gonna use exploited people, black people, Latino people, immigrants, queer folks, trans folks, to save racial capitalism, right? Um, they're gonna find people who agree with them. They're gonna give them the biggest platform they've ever had in their life. And, you know, so for example, you know, you got Northside Lisa Clemens, who was a former police officer, um, who, you know, people are saying she, she represents a very mainstream, um, you know, black perspective. And she doesn't, she just has a, a louder platform. Um, you know, again, when you start to actually really listen to black folks, our hopes and our dreams have nothing to do with the police, right? When, when black folks dream about their future, it is a future free of racial terrorism, like, Al Sharpton, Reverend Al Sharpton said, we need white folks to get their knee off our neck so we can grow and we can be who we need to be, not who y'all want us to be. And so I say all that to say that, um, you know, again, there, 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 there is no consensus, you know, within the black community. There, I don't know if there ever has been outside of the idea that, um, you know, we all want to be free. Of course, freedom looks different depending on who you ask. And let us not um, forget that many people profit from these systems, including black folks, right? Um, whether we're talking about policing or prisons or military or war. And we have to be able to have honest conversations and we have to have honest media that is investigating that and interrogating um, that and being able to call that out and make those obvious connections, right? Of course, they're gonna save a system that they profit from. 
Um, so can, can, can you can you repeat the question again? I'm sorry. I... No worries. Just as you look at the work that's happening around the organizing right now, what's your vision and does any of the organizing that's happening right now seem viable to you? And what feels like valid abolition work to you? Right. Okay. So, you know, I, as, as we talk to neighbors and community members, you know, one of the first things that we hear is neighborhood watch. Let's recreate neighborhood watch programs. Those were effective. Um, a lot of people, I think are traumatized from the nineties where we had a lot of high gang activity and crack cocaine, you know, was obviously a criminal problem back then rather than a health problem. Um, or economic problem, the way, obviously, it was framed by the mainstream Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, again, it, neighborhood watch isn't inherently bad. You know, you could use a neighborhood watch system and do some deep anti-racist work, or you can just recreate a racist policing system. So, um, other ideas I've heard new ideas that I, I think are worth really investing more in our community chaplains, right? Like uh, spiritual advisors who um, are non-denominational and don't have a religious focus, but who can mediate, you know, domestic issues in our communities. Um, I forget where I heard this data, but the fifth precinct that serves the South Central community where I live, I believe it was 85 to 90% of all calls received in, I think it was 2018, were nonviolent and needed a nonviolent response. But yet, our system is so unsophisticated, all we have is militarized responders who are very expensive as well, right? Um, so, you know, that I, the idea of chaplains was what if you know we collected the data of domestic calls and we started to build community programs that employed chaplains and the Bryant neighborhood where I live it's a historic black community it was up to I think 70% black around 1990 the census and also we know you know black folks are historically undercounted um, but there's also a lot of black, small black family churches here. You know, it's, I, I refer to it sometimes as the Black Bible Belt of South Minneapolis. And it's a very spiritual community. I don't say that disparaging. I say that uh, in, in a way that there's a lot of power in this community, or at least there was, right? Um, and, and it's still visible. And, you know, People, black folks in this community listen to spiritual leaders, right? More than they're going to listen to politicians or for sure more than they're going to listen to a weaponized um, state authority like the Minneapolis police officer. Um, so, again, as we begin to really examine the function of policing in our society, we realize we've, we've outsourced safety to um, people that, you know, in many ways are the enemy of black people and black communities, right? You know, growing up in the suburbs, you know, I grew up, I, I, I literally, you know, had to fist fight white racist kids in my neighborhood. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of these, you know, people are the prototype of our urban police officers so not only did we outsource safety, but we outsourced it to the enemies of black people. Isn't that something? And so again, this is tied to a bigger conversation of how racial capitalism, it incentivizes us to create more convenient lifestyles where we outsource everything, right? Including uh, jobs, <laughs> right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And we have to reclaim community and it's rooted in reconnecting to humanity and it's rooted in really having conversations, right? Like, you know, there's that old uh, 
um, cliche that, oh, I'm not racist, I got a black friend, right? And we know that's usually weaponized by racist people to say really racist stuff, right? I don't know if I could curse on here, but I was about to. Uh, but, um, but there's also a lot of truth in that, right? You're gonna be less racist when your next door neighbors, you know, are Hmong family that you break bread with regularly, right? Or, you know, a black and a white family uh, live next door to each other and their kids grow up playing together and, and the parents um, build relationships around that, right? You are gonna be less racist when you realize at the end of the day, like we all have such simple common connections and dreams. Like we all want healthy and safe communities. We all want healthy children and, uh, you know, vibrant cities to live in. Nobody wants to live in squalor. Nobody wants to live in poverty. Nobody wants to live under threats of violence. The problem is only certain people have had to endure those conditions while you know, the masses, specifically white, middle-class and upper-class people have been protected from that. And that, relation, that arrangement is by design. That's what we gotta get people to understand. It's cause and effect and they work together. So we've talked a little bit about the organizing or uh, more than a little bit about the organizing happening right now, but specific to M um, the city council's work to change the city charter so that they have more control over MPD. Um, are there, do you think that that work has any room within this abolition vision that you have presented? Absolutely. I, I do think the charter needs to be changed, that's for sure. Um, I also think people put too much stake in systematic change and not enough resources in, um, you know, our outside game, you know. It was when people took over the streets is when, you know, the leaders even remotely started talking about justice and change. Um, so changing the charter is definitely important and what people are confused about, you know, I literally just had this conversation yesterday um, in my block meeting and, you know, people think changing the charter means putting defund the police or abolish the police in the charter, but no, changing the charter, it just means right now the way the charter is written is the city mandates X amount of police for X amount of residents. I, I don't know the formula, but there's a formula. And although the policing is an antiquated system that is deeply tied to slavery and an expensive system, it is mandated by our charter that we pay for these services, right? So that needs to change. So amending the charter just means we have to change the structure that says you have to pay for this very expensive system that terrorizes black people and does a lot of bad things to many communities. Um, so organizing um, around that is, you know, so here in the Bryant and Central community, we've been hosting Saturday community assemblies at Phelps Park uh, in response to the murder of George Floyd. And we've been very um, upfront with our neighbors. Our, our meetings are not to build safety plans around protecting private property. Our meetings are rooted in justice and listening to black folks. And that's the only way to build true safety and security in this community is by building safety for everybody, especially those who are the least among us. So not just black folks, but poor black folks, right? So we have community assemblies every Saturday at Phelps Park. And then we're asking people to take these conversations to their blocks. Um, so, that, so we're having midweek block meetings and then weekend community-wide meetings. And you know, so we've been having panels and speakers on Saturday. And 
a lot of, you know, these conversations, there's, there's a lot that we're talking about. It's all interconnected and we're trying to help people make the connections, but we don't necessarily process it all on that Saturday in a big community. So we asked people to do some unpacking within their block. So last night within my block meeting, you know, we talked about the charter, the defund movement and, um, you know, I don't, I don't try to speak as an authority to my neighbors. I more so I collect questions and I um, bring them back to the folks. Um, so we're working on a panel um, to talk about these specific issues in the next two to three weeks at Phelps Park. Uh, so our neighborhood organizing work, you know, again, is it's, you know, I don't, the, the Bryant and Central Neighborhood Organizations I don't believe they have officially or formally endorsed abolition like the city council has done. And um, I would encourage, I think neighborhood organizations should consider doing that. I'm not on the board of directors anymore. I stepped off the board last fall, but I'm a, I'm a leader in the community and they pay me as a consultant to help do some of this organizing work as they build their own staff and organization. Um, but I say all that to say that I think neighborhood organizations are a powerful and underutilized uh, system that has been overutilized by white homeowners and gentrifiers and underutilized by renters, black and brown folks, and folks who uh, believe in anti-racist organizing. And so I think um, using our model of taking over neighborhood organizations, developing leaders in this community, especially black and brown leaders, but also white leaders as well, um, because this is white people's duty to dismantle racism because they created it, right? And so I, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's, I think it, it would be a helpful movement to have neighborhoods go behind and um, pass their own resolution similar to the city council to abolish the police. And I don't think that you know, that needs to be our major focus either. I think, um, I think really building community around how do we recenter um, connectedness. And I think naturally what comes from those conversations are safety and, um, community engagement and um so our goal is to move these from conversations into working groups and along the process we're going to train people um we use the people's institute undoing racism training as a model one of my colleagues in this community is sandra richardson she's born and raised here in the bryant neighborhood and she runs the people's institute north and so our goal is to build or establish a permanent anti-racist training center where we can train the community for free. People don't have to pay. And we could train them not only how to, you know, have an anti-racist analysis, but how to put it into practice, into community organizing, into dismantling and disrupting oppressive systems, beginning you know, with an economic lens and how do we put resources where the need is. So one other example I, I, I quickly want to lift up is, you know, after the um, killing of George Floyd on Memorial Day, so much has happened in terms of organizing and so much has happened organically, like, you know, the community came together, you know, to create the memorial. Um, folks in the community built. There's two mutual aid centers where families can get groceries at the Phelps Boys and Girls Club, Southside Village on 39th and Chicago, as well as Setul, C-T-U-L, on 37th and Chicago, both a block from the memorial site on, you know, on the south and north side. Um, and, you know, there's, uh, on, on certain days of the week, walking to the memorial, you could get breakfast or lunch. Um, people built a makeshift uh, cemetery, the Say Their Names Memorial Cemetery, which is very powerful on 37th and Columbus. Um, so just 
tucked around the corner from the memorial community safety patrols you know to do what the police have always failed to do uh there's a, a medic station at the memorial so like that sort of community response that happened organically gives me so much hope and the neighborhood organizations what i'm pushing them to do is to build infrastructure around that why isn't our city council you know putting all their time and energy into building infrastructure around the new community that has been created right because if you listen to black folks here in the Bryan central neighborhood that's the, the the most common thing we hear is people are grieving from a loss of community right where you know uh they they felt um home rather than alienated in their their historical neighborhood and so we have a model to lift up right um our council member jenkins has been really um pushing to reopen the intersection of 38th and chicago which is really it's a fight that this community doesn't need right now we're literally weeks into the grieving process and you know we've seen streets shut down for years due to road construction why can't this intersection stay shut while people grieve and we figure out long-term solutions and so the narrative that city elected officials are painting around how the closure of the street and the memorial creates danger is a false narrative and we're challenging that right um so a lot of the work we've been doing you know again we're on the defense constantly trying to frame and control and battle narratives right um, because these same politicians didn't paint this neighborhood as dangerous when Derek Chauvin killed George Floyd because it's only really dangerous to people that look like me right my white neighbors don't have to shop on 38th in Chicago worry about getting a knee to their neck and nobody would have been showing up to our community assemblies had the streets not been destroyed right and people acknowledge that you know and people in in our community our neighbors you know they're, they're very apologetic and they acknowledge that you know you know it's problematic that it took all of this to happen to get us to show up and again we don't push people away we say we, we want to pull people in we say you know what you're here we're going to work with you it's not too late and just for a minute before i let you go since um we're we're well over the half an hour time limit we would set if you want to talk about your podcast and your column real quick and then um we can let people know just about your column at the uptake yes um so i started people power podcast right now it's available on youtube i started it as a response to the pandemic and you know really the conditions this year have created the perfect oppressive cocktail with the global pandemic and depression economic depression as well as you know the the racial terrorism uh so you know unemployed people have time to protest right so my podcast has has you know it started out very experimental and you know i've really i think i've found um you know kind of my traction and covering the people's updates as well as coronavirus updates and the the, the overall goal with the podcast is to report on people power that is that the mainstream media misses protests direct actions community bring the voices of community organizers neighbors uh who are often left out of these conversations but who have been really leading a lot of this work on the ground and so i'm i'm, I'm wrapping up season one it started out as kind of trying to do a daily podcast which is way too much work um, so i'm trying to sustain it to two episodes a week and I'm, I'm wrapping up season one and i'm gonna start raising funds to work on season two so i'm gonna take uh you know a few weeks off i've been pausing a few weeks just with everything that's going on it's there's a lot of work to do um so i'm gonna i'll have a few more episodes to wrap up season one we'll take a few weeks off come back with season two and try to get it up on all podcast platforms um 
for people. And so, so I also, I've been doing some on and off writing for our community newspaper. We have a dual language newspaper that's delivered to every home in the Bryant Central neighborhood called Bosas de South Central in English and Spanish. And I'm also excited now to be a part of the uptake team and keep reporting on the ongoing battle on East 38th in Chicago, as well as the citywide battle, because all of these systems work together to create the oppressive conditions that we see in Minneapolis, right? We didn't become the worst city and the worst state in the nation for black folks on accident. It takes all these systems to work together to create these, this sort of inequality. And it takes brave media to report on it and to bring those voices. So I'm excited about this partnership. And we're excited to have you. And very excited for this conversation and grateful for the opportunity to have had it. Um, really excited for this series. We'll be talking about MPD 150, talking about the city charter and future episodes, just wanting to explore this conversation from all angles and really do it by centering black voices and centering discussions around um, equity and what equity truly looks like in the community in these discussions. Um, as with all things, thank you so much. We're grateful to have your time. Um, I'm going to end the video because I'm not quite sure how to take this down from being live and I will Thanks. speak with you all later. And, and I just want to give one last shout out to MPD150. They have a new updated version of their report coming out soon. So look for that real soon. Thank you, Serene. Thank you so much. Thanks to Merjan for joining me for that interview. We're going to continue exploring the movements around police and specifically the Minneapolis Police Department as well as the Southside organizing that's currently happening for a while now. For now, thank you for listening to the Radical News Radio Hour. You can reach us at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com. You can find us at journalismofcolor.com. And you can listen to all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and several other podcast platforms. Many thanks to Manny Mestis for this episode's opening and closing theme music. For now, you're listening to WFNU, LP, St. Paul, Frogtown, Community Radio, 94.1 FM.